It's not just that I thought that. <laughs> the, the marketing for this play typically involves like a Sherlock Holmes and a magnifying glass. So that's a misleading marketing on the behalf of many of those companies. <laughs> And welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for the themed month on No Script, an unscripted conversation about. Did you already say that? Is that I did. where we're at in this podcast? Wow. <laughs> but I just got into fun. the role of it, you know? I just right, like, right. it took over. That, that back, back of your mind thing just took me over and I dived right in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's the, the excitement of one of the hallmarks of our seasons. Hallmark is maybe a, a funny way to segue us into um, talking about the fact that we have a themed month this month around, oh boy, another alliterative title. Mistletoe. We're back. We're back. We're back. <laughs> Mistletoe month is here. This is our themed month every season on No Script since the very beginning of No Script's existence 10 or more seasons ago. This is season 11. So I don't know. Would you say that was 10 seasons ago or 11? I don't know. Well, yeah, regardless, yeah. that that long ago, we were doing a themed month. That themed month, I think, was musical month. And since then, we've been able to integrate musicals into our more broad conversations. But each season, we have a month, four episodes, where we try to talk about scripts that share an element in common. And that what element that is varies wildly. We've done specific playwrights. We've done specific themes. We've done specific concepts. We've done specific forms. We've done specific periods in theater history, and this time around, we are doing four plays that have to do with the holiday season. Mistletoe Month is here. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so so yeah, we like to have these conversations, like to kind of connect the conversations throughout the different plays. So get excited for those things and get excited for the script today because we're talking about Inspecting Carol by Daniel Sullivan and the Seattle Rep Company. This is, I think it'll be a really fun conversation. It was sort of our way in to talk about A Christmas Carol. To some degree, A Christmas Carol is perhaps the most famous Christmas holiday play, besides perhaps one or two others that are later in our programming this <laughs> themed month as well. But uh, there's, there's just so many varied adaptions of The Christmas Carol that actually it seemed like a way into that feature of the holiday season is to talk about a play that I think a lot of people have heard of in Inspecting Carol is a really popular show, especially for community theaters, high school theaters, even college theaters to do. Uh, it's it's hilariously funny. It's sort of a twist on doing The Christmas Carol. I think it'll be really fun to talk about. I, You know what? Before we did this episode, I'd never read Inspecting Carol or seen it. Yeah, I same. had just like seen advertisements for it everywhere. And all the the marketing for Inspecting Carol had like a Sherlock Holmesian sort of figure in it. And <laughs> so I tell you what, this is I'm admitting my own ignorance here. I thought this was like a murder mystery version of the Christmas Carol <laughs> before we came into it. Sure, sure. <laughs> It gets close at some points. I mean, there's this, sure, there's tr yeah. truly a delightful level of farcical um, happenstance that we get to talk about in this in this script. So yeah, excited for that conversation. Excited to talk about it because yeah, it is it is like one of those plays that is just everywhere. Like it just keeps being done. So so yeah, it's exciting to get to kind of engage it and to get to engage through it the story of Christmas Carol, um, uh, which is of course its own. You know, every every holiday season, someone's doing Christmas Carol. So. 
Yeah, before we jump into that conversation, though, we want to just give a quick shout out to the folks over at Magic Mind. Magic Mind and us are partnering on this themed month, and we're really excited to tell you about that. More on that later in the episode, but we want to give you a quick heads up that as part of that conversation later, we are going to be able to give you a link and a discount code to get Magic Mind for yourself. So just keep that in the back of your brain. When that comes around, you may want to grab your phone, grab a pencil so that you can jot those details down because getting able to access Magic Mind with the discount code that we have for you, I think will be something really cool. Again, we'll get to that later in the episode, but quick shout out to them and a heads up about the discount code that is on the way. Yes, indeed. Now, uh, we're going to jump into the conversation around the script some more. Um, uh, this is the uh, part of the show where we're going to do some context uh, around the script. Um, as a note, as we're engaging this themed month and the sort of like in integrated conversations between all of the plays, we just we just need a little bit more programming time. So we're going to be doing kind of more abbreviated versions of context. Aren't going to give you as deep a dive into playwrights and as deep a dive into what's going on uh, with the show, just so that we can get to the conversation, get to the meat of the conversation as fast as we can. So um, uh, that said, I'm going to jump in and give you just a little bit of context around this. This uh, show, Inspecting Carol, was uh, written and kind of created in uh, 1991 by Daniel Sullivan and the Seattle Repertory Theater. Um, Seattle Repertory Theater, very well known for kind of doing doing uh, ongoing new productions, keeping coming up with different plays and things like that. Um, and and uh, yeah, creating a really uh, energetic space around that. So it's cool to engage a script that's kind of coming out of a community as well. Um, this, this play was based on an 1836 Russian play called The Government Inspector or The Inspector General by Nikolai Golgol. Um, and, it, and and it's kind of like uh, one of the things that we might talk about in in the course of the in the course of the conversation around it is these kind of like dreamlike sequences from that play. Obviously, Christmas Carol has a lot of these sort of dreamlike sequences kind of baked into it, so it, it matches up pretty well with that. Um, and uh, and the sort of like uh, whodunit sort of farcical nature of it too is kind of a connection point there. The Seattle Repertory Theater ran it in 1991, ran it again in 2002, and then again in 2012. Um, and now actually has a new show that they're running, Mr. Dickens and His Carol. Um, uh, that is that is uh, kind of a, their their current running Christmas show. But three shows from them. But then uh, just like pulled pulled this short list of of all the places that are doing uh, um, inspecting Carol this year. Um, and it's it's long. It's like ten different places: uh, <laughs> Newport Theater Arts Center in California, Barnlot Theater in Kentucky, Chico Theater Company in California, Children's and Adults Theater and Studio in Texas. The list goes on and on. Um, this play like kind of like has this sort of wildfire effect of super super fun super great cast of characters you get your christmas carol but you also get a fun riff on it lots of sort of mistaken identity sort of stuff great show for a variety of ages so it kind of continues to have this sort of like um uh, uh mm, sparkly life is what i'm trying what i want to say but like all these sort of like pop-up sort of uh spots that it, that it gets to keep doing its show exciting that we finally get to turn to it on the podcast yeah, it, it this play I think to some degree relies on the knowledge of the Christmas Carol, uh, the Dickens story, and and a play version of that as a cultural phenomenon, and so you do get sections of somebody's adaption of the Christmas Carol. I, I assume Daniel Sullivan or whoever he was working with at Seattle Rep, uh, you know, wrote there i guess they had to write an adaption of the christmas carol or sections of it to include in this play about doing an adaption of the christmas carol right. <laughs> because you only get little snippets like you get the famous scene where mr cratchit comes home with tiny tim on his shoulder and you can hear them singing as they come up to the door and all the other children are getting ready and they hide from dad to play the sort of game of hide and seek like that's a famous scene from the christmas carol that makes an appearance two or three times changing every time over the course <laughs> of this play uh, you know the famous Jacob Marley's face appearing in the door knocker that appears in the course of this play um, and then the, those dreamlike sequences from the inspector general that are described I think they have a very 
uh, specific manifestation in inspecting Carol. The end of the play, when the, the company puts on this sort of really bad production all through, that's done in this kind of whirlwind, just little glimpses, little glimpses, little glimpses, very strange, very ethereal yeah. sort of method. And, and you know, in some ways it is sort of a montage, but I think it also might be an homage to the uh, play on which this is based. So... Like Jackson said, we're, we're trying to keep this sh- the front end of this podcast as short as we can during uh, Mistletoe Month. We we found in themed months in years past that we end up not having time to talk <laughs> about the script and the connections to other scripts. So I'm going to go fast on the synopsis. I'm not going to get very detailed. I'm not going to introduce all the characters. Just going to give you a general overview, which is that this play is set at the rehearsals of a company, a fictional company called the Soapbox Playhouse. This company is in dire financial straits. Now, again, this play was written in 1991. That part of it at least feels like it might be from 2023. And they are trying to do their annual production of The Christmas Carol because that production is a cash cow for them, right? And this is true of a lot of companies that do a Christmas show as a major cash cow. And the the play has gotten fairly stale. The same people are in it year after year. The same props are used year after year. The same costumes are used year after year but they're here again only this time they're in worse financial straits kevin who is the sort of new business manager of the company comes in to talk to zora who's a sort of eccentric theater director and founder of the company and he basically says not only did we only get half the subscribers that we planned on for the season but also the national endowment for the arts has done an investigation and decided that we are not producing high enough level art to warrant the grant that we are receiving. So they're going to cut all of our funding unless we pass an inspection. And so a mysterious inspector is coming in the next couple of days to watch the rehearsals and a run of your production of The Christmas Carol and make a judgment about whether or not we are going to receive this money from the National Endowment for the Arts. Now, unbeknownst to all of them, the first thing that happened in the play is that a gentleman named Wayne showed up. And Wayne is, uh, he is in search of a new career. He has been working in data processing and has decided to, as he says, follow his bliss and become an actor with no formal training. So the first scene in the play is him showing up and saying to the stage manager, whose name is MJ, I'd like to audition for the company. MJ says, well, we're a union house, so you can't just be in the show. And it doesn't really even seem like you're a real actor so please be on your way and she scoots him out the door and then the rehearsal starts and then all the news about the financial stuff and the inspector and so then Wayne in a bold move pops his head back into the rehearsal after all that and says I'd really like to audition now here is where the comedy of errors that is this play begins because Kevin the business manager Zora the artistic director and director of the Christmas Carol and the stage manager to some degree suddenly go, oh, this is the inspector. And he's here in disguise as an actor. And they have a couple of things that make them believe that. It's all based in dramatic irony because the audience knows that's not true. But they go and they move forward believing that this guy must be the inspector. So they start to ask him his opinions on the show. They start to change the show. They actually let him rewrite The Christmas Carol, especially according to some of the wild ideas of one of the older members of the company who plays Scrooge named Larry. Larry's recently gone through a fairly uh, fairly hairy divorce and has let some of that pain slide into his work and proposes some fairly radical changes as well as he has some radical political ideas that he proposes to the uh, uh, production of A Christmas Carol. Uh, there, there, look, there's lots of other wonky, wild things that happen. The tiny Tim that has been in the play forever has just been getting older and older and is now like too large and heavy to really be tiny Tim in the play. Uh, the, the company who has been historically white has tried to introduce an actor of color into the script and all of their uh, subtle racism towards this member of the company becomes an object of scorn and comedy and cross the course of the play. 
In the end, of course, they realize that Wayne was not the real inspector of the play. Uh, and they're about to throw him out on his ear when the actual inspector shows up and says, hey, I'm your inspector. I'm here to watch a run. And so they try to do a run in the kind of final montage climax of the play of this messed up version of Christmas Carol that's been rewritten, that's full of racist imagery and horrible changes to the script, as well as mechanical malfunctions on stage. Like, in some ways, this play is the original, the play that goes wrong, for those yeah. of you that know the, that <laughs> reference. Like, their production of the Christmas Carol is full of mechanical errors on the part of the stagecraft as well. It all ends with the company sort of falling as the stage breaks under them and dumping juice all over the poor inspector uh, who sort of flee faints, actually, and is carried into the lobby at that point. Um, the company gathers at the end of the play and says, well, this is it, I guess. We're screwed. Uh, way to go, Wayne. Way to go, all of you different <laughs> people who screwed up across the course of the play. But Zora comes back in and in a true Christmas miracle says, the inspector loved it. She loved the bold risk-taking. She said it was the first time she'd ever felt something at the theater and not only wants to give us our grant back, but give us a bigger grant. The only catch is she wants to see the show again. And so the company realizes that they have to do this wild, mistake-filled, fairly dangerous and racist version of The Christmas Carol over again in order to get this amount of money. And that is where the blackout happens. So that's just the sort of uh, quick overview of the plot of Inspecting Carol. The title, of course, it's not what I thought it was, and maybe some of you thought it was, in part because of the marketing, I have to say. It's not just that I thought that. <laughs> There's, the marketing for this play typically involves like a Sherlock Holmes and a magnifying glass. So that's a misleading marketing on the behalf of many of those companies. It's not a murder mystery. The title references like in the inspector, of course, coming to inspect the company for their artistic value, but also inspecting on kind of a social cultural level the idea of doing the Christmas Carol the year after year after year as a cash cash for a company. Now, I, here's what I will say, Jackson, and then I know we need to, uh, before we dive into our conversation, I am from Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha has truly one of the like premier community theaters in the country. The Omaha Community Playhouse is a, like a big deal. If you ever go, you will have the experience. It's more like a regional professional theater than like a traditional community theater in the scope and scale of what they do. The Omaha Community Playhouse is a huge deal nationally, not just locally. And they do The Christmas Carol every year. It's the sure. same production Every year, I used to go every year. My mother's a sign language interpreter. She used to do the sign language interpreting for one of the performances like you do. I mean, I saw it every year, and it was the same every year. So I had so much delight in this play because I got it. Like, I knew exactly what they were talking about. That's the same door to that same set yep. that they have used every year for 50 years or whatever, <laughs> however long it is in the company. I, I do find the premise of this play, like, wildly relatable. Using the Christmas Carol every year to financially sustain your organization. Yeah, yeah, and then getting the chance to kind of turn 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 a different lens on it, investigate some of it, inspect some of it, um, and and yeah, yeah, engage engage it. Well, I'm I'm excited to jump into that conversation. Um, I'm also excited though to share a little bit more about my magic mind with all of you, um, because uh, I've been I've been a fan of it for a little while. <laughs> um, it's it's been it's been a really helpful thing for me. Um, I've been trying to find sort of sustainable energy. Uh, for for a while now, I love coffee. I love drinking coffee throughout the day. But like, uh, as I'm sure many of you who drink coffee know, it's a jittery experience eventually. And eventually, if you're drinking it well, too late in the day, you get yeah. You, you, you get and I sleep. are both big time coffee people. I mean, for sure, we are both like beyond just like the oh, I love a cup of coffee. And like we are in the <laughs> in the higher percentage of coffee right. drinkers. <laughs> we are coffee all day people. And yeah, the jitteriness is like it's a real part of the coffee experience 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I was just kind of in the season of like kind of tired of that. And so I was like kind of looking for, for something else, something else to help me kind of sustain energy, sustain like a flow state throughout the rest of the day. Um, and so uh, really excited that that Magic Mind wanted to come come alongside us th during this uh, themed month. And, and we get to talk about it because I've just really found that uh, like whether I'm, you know, trying to get through a script reading for this show or kind of working on rehearsals late into the night that I need just a little bit more energy throughout the day. And Magic Mind has been a really great way for me to to get that energy, but also like the sort of long lasting benefits of it as well. This kind of sustained flow states that kind of stack onto each other um, uh, and, 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 it, and it really, really helps me out. It helps me stay awake as, a, as I'm as I'm reading through plays, preparing for the show. The Magic Mind has all sorts of awesome ingredients. Fortunately, um, uh, uh, people like James Bashara, the, the creator of Magic Mind, know how to pronounce all these ingredients. I don't necessarily, but I'm gonna tr I'm gonna try to do it for you here. Um, it has uh, it has phosphodiesterine. Oh boy, cytocholine, bacopa. Monieri, lion's mane mushrooms, and all that is for kind of the cognitive processing and, and kind of sustained uh, flow state. For energy, it has matcha in there. It has cordyceps mushrooms. It has Rodelia rosa. It has B vitamins. For stress vitamin, for stress management, it has ashwagandha, L-theanine, and turmeric. We're, we're carrying on the long-standing tradition of just like butchering names for this show. Um. <laughs> yeah, that this is part of the no script experience. It is wildly no mispronouncing experience. things is. Just what we do. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Apologizing for it, but but then wildly mispronouncing things. Um, so so all of these ingredients are are awesome. Uh, uh, sourced from some of the the best sources around, and and definitely help to kind of sustain you. And again, like the kind of stacking benefits of getting to do it for a little while. I've definitely noticed like sustained flow state for longer. You can take it with coffee. You don't have to like switch up your rhythms in terms of your morning routine or anything like that. You'll just start to experience the kind. And a lasting flow state of of kind of adding this into your routine and we're super excited to get to offer it to you for a little bit of a, of a discount uh, for you to give it a try yeah it's that drinking it alongside coffee that i think is so exciting for us on this podcast it's like we're not we're not trying to hand over like a put aside your coffee there's something better no this is yeah, like it's not gonna you happen. still get your coffee you know you just also get this thing that makes the coffee experience better as part of our partnership with magic mind they're sponsoring our themed month we're really excited about that opportunity and because they're sponsoring our themed month we are are able to offer you a pretty severe discount to try Magic Mind for yourself. It's a 56% discount off your first prescription, uh, subscription rather, and a 20% discount off of if you're just going to do a one-time purchase. Now, in order to do that, you're going to want to use our unique discount code and go to our unique link. So how that's going to work is you are going to go to magicmind.com slash no script. All one word, no hyphen no underscores magicmind.com slash n-o-s-c-r-i-p-t magicmind.com slash no script and you are going to use our unique discount code important that you have that code that's no script 20 n-o script 20 n-o-s-c-r-i-p-t 20 if you go to our link you use our discount code that's how you're going to get that discount on trying magic mind out for yourself take it from some coffee drinkers this is the time to give a product like this a try they have a hundred percent money back guarantee no questions asked really no risk to you if you don't like it they refund it right away uh for these two coffee drinkers we could say give magic mind a shot and uh hopefully you will and thanks to magic Magic Mind for sponsoring our themed month. Now jumping back into the conversation on the script inspecting Carol. Um, gosh, this, this so this play has just the 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 sort of like perfect example of mistaken identity of like someone because mistaken identity sort of has some frivolous versions out there sort of like the um oh no I'm gonna blank on what it, importance of being earnest that's sort of like a, a frivolous love interest sort of mistaken identity this one packs some stakes in there right like like it's not just mistaken identity it's mistaken identity of the person who could give you your budget 
for your operating company for the next year. And and Wayne walks into this situation um, and just like, unbeknownst to him, is the stakeholder for these people for like a day and a half or however long it is. It's, it's a little bit longer than a day and a half. Um, but uh, is the stakeholder for these people and their likely futures um, trying to maintain this company. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty short, though. They they say they're only going to rehearse for four days total yeah, for yeah. their opening night performance, which is, I mean, just wild. Just <laughs> wild. Just imagine. But, yes, <laughs> yeah. I, I like that you mentioned the stakes because that's something that I think that the company, uh, Daniel Sullivan and Seattle Rep, d- did both really well and strange at some points because the, the idea that the company is the theater company is going to go under if this production of The Christmas Carol doesn't go well. It's an interesting kind of ongoing stakes for them. Like th- there's different levels of stakes for different parts of the plot. The Christmas Carol yearly show has to go well because that is what sustains the company financially. So there's already that built in, like regardless of all the other craziness that happens in this play, the company has to successfully rehearse and put up the Christmas Carol in four days because they need to. And then added on to that, you get this reality that the the NEA is going to send an inspector because they might lose their grant. So, okay, another level of stakes that the company now has to do this particular show very, very well in order to financially sustain themselves. But there's, I think, a subtle other stake. And it's, I, I say subtle like it's a mystery. It's not. I just <laughs> think that it's a little underwritten, which is that um, apparently – the founding company members, of which there are several rehearsing this show across this very large ensemble cast, are financially responsible if the company loses money. And so the the amount that they might go in the hole as a result of all this, the way the script presents it is that the founding members of the company will be on the hook for that money. And so a couple of the company members, most notably Zora and Larry, are have this additional stakes of like they might be personally financially ruined if this production goes badly. Yeah, yeah, you get the sense you you pretty pretty much somewhat somewhat early on in the play you get the 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 read that this was not really an LLC. This was not organized into something that could protect them in such an event as this. They would yeah, they would be personally responsible for all all of what's going to happen. So you have some real skin in the game for some of these folks. Um and and you see what that pushes them to do, I think in really interesting ways. Um because especially Zora, but also people like Sydney and Dorothy um, uh, all have this kind of like, I guess we'll sacrifice this to your kind of weird ideas, Wayne. And Wayne like has some, like he, yeah, he definitely has a, like Larry kind of shows up and is this sort of manipulative presence towards Wayne. But Wayne also just has a couple just odd ideas to throw into the Christmas Carol. Um, and, and they, they kind of... You, you see them having to be like, oh, I know this is a bad idea, but I'm going to go with it anyway <laughs> because the stakes are so high for them. And it's not a shoe in that the show is going to go well either. Like they talk about disasters of the past, most notably <laughs> that at some point, Larry, who who is the sort of regular guy that plays Scrooge, was fired from the role because in some sort of political protest, one evening in the past, he performed the entire role of Scrooge in Spanish and absolutely screwed over the rest of the company. And so it's it, what, what's fascinating to me is the both like bold insistence that we've done this all the time. We, we can get through this in four days. We all know the lines. We all know the blocking and the reality that it's like it's been a disaster in the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That there's there's no real assurance that it's going to be good on its own, but yet people keep coming, um, and and so the that and that that sort of is is further thrown in to uh, a peril by the the characters themselves, um, which which I like because because there's 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 the big mistaken identity slash problem of Wayne, but then there's also yeah there's there's uh, Luther who gets gets a job on a TV show and leaves. Um, there's there's Larry who's bringing in his personal life <laughs> into into the production and, and giving these uh, kind of critiques that are based on on his own experience, and so you have all of these kind of complicating factors, and I think a, a 
I don't know. It's hard to target one person who we're following through this. Um, if I were forced to, I would maybe say Zora, um, who's kind of the director and the the one at the center of all these things. But it'd be I'd be I feel like hard put to say that she is the character we're following through because there's kind of a series of vignettes of people engaging with Wayne. Um, who, uh, as the kind of stranger who came to town, um, uh, and, uh, and, and seeing, uh, learning a little bit about them, about their world, what they care about, how they want to manipulate their way into <laughs> the National Endowment of the Arts money in some way, um, and, and also just keep the theater alive for, for, for the crew as well. Yeah, I, I think that one of the great benefits of this play is how strongly ensemble it is. And yeah. perhaps that's why it's such a community theater mainstay. It This is a show about a group of people. And I, the writing does a fairly good job, I think, making the group of people and their success or failure the protagonist as a whole. Uh, that's both very complicated to do and not always worth it or successful. I think, you know, a couple weeks ago we talked talked about Steel Magnolias. And that, I think, is another example of a show that does that really well. The group is the protagonist, the whole group of them together. And it's hard to pick out, like, a main character. And, you know... Steel Magnolias is also a very popular community theater show. And so I, I, one of the great loves and great joys of community theater as a function in our communities is the focus on a group of people making something together. And so plays that are popular oftentimes tend to do that. And I don't know if that is a conscious effort or just something that we all recognize that the the form of community theater, the community doing theater, and the the form, the content of certain plays come together in a in a beautiful pairing at times. Yeah, yeah. And and this play in particular like lean definitely leans into that. Obviously centric to the plot is that sort of uh community a agent in the community bringing on these plays. But then also, as you mentioned in your synopsis, it evaluates um, what the community wants to focus on as well in Christmas Carol. Um, you, you kind of have this societal critique almost undercurrent of this play that that um, at least asks the question, why are we talking about this multiple hundred-year-old story from England? Um, <laughs> does it have an application to today? As much as maybe we've uh, given Larry some short shrift this episode because of his abrasiveness and his unwillingness to kind of have the group <laughs> inform his decision-making, um, he brings up some valid points of like, <laughs> let's maybe make this relevant and talk about the real struggles of today. Obviously, Carol, um, or not Carol, uh, uh, the Christmas Carol uh, is about a current struggle of that day. Let's try to recontextualize it and bring it into the vernacular of now. And then you have that sort of uh, uh, position juxtaposed with, well, yeah, but th they're not going to go to that play. <laughs> we need we need people to come to the play to make money. So all of that is a very relevant conversation. And I think um, interesting, it's just, it's just cool to see another layer of this be this sort of societal slash cultural um, wondering and critique inspection um, of of uh, what theaters do when they continue to perpetuate a story, um, especially if they're perpetuating it in a mindless way, which is not always the case. But in some cases, um, the kind of repeat of the show over and over and over again can be this kind of like um, a mindless rhythm that this theater has gotten into. So it's great at kind of asking that question and critiquing it and, and also leaving room for the joy of, yeah, we're going to see Christmas Carol again, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I one of the things that um, I, I'm not sure about, and perhaps it's just because of my own personal nostalgia about it, is the the, the play does seem to have a fairly negative vision overall of the kind of repeated annual tradition of doing the Christmas Carol, and I. I mean, I don't know. I loved going to the Christmas Carol as a kid. I mean, I know I said that, like, 
it was the same stuff every year and it's the same show always. And it is. I'm sure if I go back this year and see it, I, it'll be the exact same Christmas Carol. Uh, but there, there was something beautiful to me, like growing up and the nostalgia of that, that this show definitely makes uh, some criticism of, you know, oh, Larry brings out like the same gross turkey prop that they've used right. year after year. One of the characters, uh, Walter, is wearing, uh, uh, actually, I think Wayne does later too the the robe of the ghost of christmas future and talks about how badly it smells because it you know it doesn't get cleaned year after year and so the the it what i guess what's strange to me is that the it does seem to criticize the tradition of the christmas carol at the same time, or and maybe other boring traditions alongside it. At the same time, though, it's not like it. The play takes a positive view of like change either. Like the all of the 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 adaptions, the alterations that are suggested to be made to the Christmas Carol across the course of the play are, I mean, objectively terrible. There, there, at no point is anybody like we should do a, try a different play or we should like there's no good ideas ever floated. This seems like a play full of bad ideas. We could either do the same show over again, which seems to be a bad idea all around in the way that the play presents it, or we could do new things, but all the new things are also bad. Right. <laughs> yeah. How do and it kind of becomes the question of how do we hook them in to the show with the title, but also subversively sneak in something else that's going on. And 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 yeah, they're all they're all universally bad. Interestingly, though, the outcome of of the play is kind of in that category. That's the thing that appeals to the the inspector from uh, the National Endowment of the Arts. Is like, ooh, this is so like edgy and and pushing the the limits of what of Christmas Carol can be. Um, so so, so even even though like there's the. Uh, the, the 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 definite like knowledge the meta knowledge and even as we're watching the final vignettes of of what is coming together because oh this is another thing I want to talk about because the jokes are set up so well um starting like throughout throughout the first three quarters of the play that final vignette play where all the jokes come to fruition in a live performance is so impactful um stuff like a trap door is opening when they shouldn't or puppets leaping up at someone's face and hitting them it's like oh well that was that was exactly what that person was afraid about um but all of these sort of like yeah, avant-garde the, the, techniques the comic the comic writing of of setting up and paying off is so well executed. So good. It feels like everything they hit along the way then comes to fruition in this whirlwind tour through the play. I mean, like, Phil, you know, is, he plays Cratchit and he's constantly complaining about having the, the tiny Tim, who, again, used to be a small kid and now is like a, an adolescent, on his back. But then that kid flees. But then Wayne, a grown man, plays tiny Tim at the end and he has to have him <laughs> back on his shoulders. I mean, all that kind of stuff is just set up and then just really hit out of the park when you get to the the whirlwind tour through Christmas Carol at the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so 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 full of all of those like like uh yeah yeah teeing teeing up teeing up the ball and just like pages later acts later seeing it seeing it knocked out of the park to really mix up my sports analogies um so so it's it's <laughs> yeah I know it's it's chock full of those sorts of things and and also just the sort of like goofy ending of the inspector loving the play uh, for all of its its weirdnesses is is also a delightful joke to pay off uh, the consternation that everyone else has been in throughout throughout the but whole play even that feels like part of this play's mocking of like the art, art system, with a capital yeah. A like you know like we're gonna do real art like at one point this might be my favorite joke in the show Larry comes on stage and he's got Phil in tow and he says well Phil and I have figured out a new end to the play and Phil, of course, is like, we were just kidding. I, I don't think this is, act I'm not suggesting this for real. We were just joking around, but Larry is taking it very seriously. And they do the final scene with Scrooge and Cratchit in the office, right? After after Scrooge has had his transformation and gone to the Cratchit house and given him all the gifts, they come into the office the next day and Scrooge says, like, you're late. And Cratchit, oh my gosh. And, and Scrooge says, you know, it's the famous line, right? We have no choice but to raise your wages, and it's the big turnaround moment for Scrooge. And so, but what what 
uh, Larry and Phil suggest is that they never pay that off. Scrooge and Cratchit just come in and it's like everything went back to normal. They never say the raise your wages. They never go on beyond that. And it was just the one night that Scrooge had his transformation. So it's like they don't ever pay off the resolution of the Christmas Carol story. Right. And that is like such a high art idea in the worst way. Like <laughs> art with like, oh, no resolution will be good for them. I mean, I I I mean I'm a theater person, obviously, right? I, I'm I'm in university, I would do this podcast. And like that kind of stuff drives me crazy. <laughs> like the audience and their experience of of theater is such is so important. And there are high art people at the worst kind of knows up capital A art people that just like believe that kind of stuff. This like, well, we won't give them the resolution that they're looking for. That's art. That's art. And this play really makes fun with with a pretty heavy hand of those kind of people at times. And I think the ending, although it's funny and it's a beautiful Christmas musical, is part of that mocking. Like the National Endowment for the Art person loves this objectively terrible Production of the Christmas Carol. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I wonder. So, so we 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 started we started this conversation with with the kind of noting that we often run out of time for conversations, and we're we're closing in on the end of the podcast. I do want to just kind of tee us up for uh, sort of future conversations in this uh, mistletoe month. Um, just about this this play and its and its position in in sort of holiday play lexicons, um, and also its position as the first play of of our of our own themed month around um, uh, sort of holiday plays and mistletoe month. Um, and just kind of I wanted to know, Jacob, just like what what draws you to this play? What what sorts of things um, in it are sort of like we've talked a little bit about some of the like resonance points of it and things like that. But the sort of the sort of draw of this play, but also the the sort of uh, preemptive, I guess, foreshadowing connection points to some of the other ones that we're going to be talking about this month. Well, I would say like this play's presentation of Christmas and of the holiday season, I I think we'll see other examples of it, but it does serve a particular function in theme month, which is that this play really highlights the commercialization that is present in the holiday season, right? The idea that you can just stage a Christmas carol and make bukus of bucks without really thinking about it. You just like do the same thing you've done year after year after year and the dollars roll in. That is certainly like a viewpoint of the holiday season, right? If you're uh, if you're a business and you just stick up some Christmas ornaments in the front of your store come holiday season, like the the way that you can commercialize the experience of Christmas for your own financial benefit is certain. I mean, it's you know, it's part of this season. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The sort of like the the need for for uh, taking advantage of the fact that everyone's home. The need for being sure that like everyone everyone <laughs> comes comes out and shows up. Um, definitely is is kind of an ongoing theme, and also the like yeah the the struggle between. Those who have a, a mind to see it, the sort of dissonance with that and the holiday season as such it is. And even the the sort of core content of the original Christmas Carol of like, yeah, it's also a critique of of, of the way wages are, are, are kind of dis- disproportionately assigned to other people. So. So, yeah, definitely that's in there. I think also. I, I think I think what we'll see throughout at least a couple of these mistletoe month plays is the. um sort of behind the curtain look at those who have uh, the ability to produce art or or just public consumption sorts of things um uh, uh and 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 the the uh the ways that the desire for the season to be a season of charitableness no matter which kind of holiday you ascribe to within the season uh, it's it's a season of charitableness um and the desire for that mixed with the um knowledge of yeah the need for a commercial or the 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 reality i guess of the commercialism of it um and also the the um the the purpose of the artist in those seasons to still like use what is available to them to bring about something, uh, something good, something charitable, or maybe just survive. Um, all those things I think are going to kind of weave their way into some of our conversations. 
Yeah, I think too that the holiday seasons are a time where traditions get highlighted in a very particular way. And the, you know, the tradition of what your family does in the month of late in the month of November and late in the month of December, regardless of which holidays you celebrate, the the way that your family engages with traditions, I think that is part of this play, too. And maybe it's it was part of my it wasn't quite frustration, but my wondering earlier in our conversation about like how this play thinks about like doing an old thing and doing a new thing is like I, I'm not sh- I'm not quite sure. And maybe it says nothing. But I'm not quite sure what it says about traditions. It's the this place seems to be equally critical of doing traditions year after year after year after year just for the sake of it, but also critical of changing those traditions and updating them in any form or fashion. Yeah, yeah, the 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 um, resistance, um, both both communal and and uh, within within even the cast itself, <laughs> uh, of of resistance. It's 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 manifested in Luther. It's manifested in a lot of things, but it's man like just Luther alone. Like, no, we can't do the show without Luther. Luther's great. He's also six feet tall and, <laughs> and will break Philo's back if he carries him. All of these that that's a sort of like highly absurd version of of exactly that like we don't want to change uh, we see the need to change and we're just going to deny the change <laughs> um and and the sort of struggle of that eventually of course there are there's a change always comes whether we want it to or not and and uh, i think certainly the uh cast of this christmas carol um uh, experiences that uh change rolling through and has to adapt quickly to a newcomer to uh trying to find some new funds and also to the the mistakes that are inherent with any change yeah, but it's uh, the change isn't like good. Like, I know that the NEA person loves it at the end, but again, I think that's part of mocking the whole system of art making. But it, I think for the the audience experience is not supposed to be that like oh that was a wonderful piece of art. I finally felt something like we. Uh, I th- I think the idea <laughs> of inspecting Carol at the end maybe this seems obvious, but but it's worth stating is that we have an incongruous experience with the NEA person. That's where the comedy comes from. We see something terrible, and the NEA person loves it, and that that incongruity causes comedy. It causes shock and laughter, and, and so assuming that I'm right about that, which again seems obvious to me, then. I just am not sure what Inspecting Carol wants me to think about holiday traditions, the tradition of the Christmas Carol in general. Like, is there any good ideas? There are, again, (laughs) I'm saying something I already said earlier, but it seems like there are no good ideas in this play. No one has any good ideas ever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder wonder if, if a possible good idea is not really... The content of the play, not really what what comes out of it, not really the way they got the money, but um, uh, this kind of this message around hospitality towards uh, people outside of the crew um, that that I wonder is is kind of around is is a little bit into this. You have to you have to maybe make some assumptions, um, but I, I I have a slight assumption, and if this doesn't necessarily have to be true. There's ways that you could direct this play and act this play that this wouldn't be true. But I kind of get the sense that Wayne might be around this company for a little while longer. Um, and and when he rolled in the door, he was like quickly turned away. Um, and even though there's this mistaken identity stuff, they want to kill him at one point. They certainly want to throw him out of on his ear. Um, uh, they they by the end of it, there's this there's this um, sort of camaraderie shown to Wayne and you have the idea that maybe Wayne has found his acting spot um, for a little while. You also have the kind of consistent critique throughout the play from uh, from Walter, who is trying to to uh, on ramp into this um, this company, um, and you you have kind of calls for more hospitality for for him as well within it. So I do wonder if there isn't a sort of subtle um, under undertone in this play of like the good idea is to not get too locked into this and keep welcoming people into the practice because perhaps that is a way that some survival of a theater can happen yeah maybe the the message is about growing the ensemble and that even though it happens in a funny way wayne's introduction into the ensemble 
is the thing that saves the company. I mean, in no uncertain terms, that is why the company is saved at the end of the play right. because of him. He's the stranger that comes to town. I, I think the other like Christmas holiday element to look at is the feature of the Christmas miracle. As a storytelling yeah. like thing, it's you know the 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 resonance of the sort of Judeo Christian like religious vision of this holiday and the miracle of Christ has manifested itself in the Christmas miracle, which happens in a lot of Christmas holiday stories. There is some Deus Machina sort of event that we just accept in Christmas plays, like that that makes. In some ways, makes holiday plays kind of what they are. Is this feature of like something happens that's almost beyond explanation that changes the world. And in this play, the NEA person loving the play, I mean, in no uncertain terms, that is a Christmas miracle. Again, it's terrible. Yeah, I know that, but that 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 miracle, that change, that uh, unexplainable thing coming about has echoes throughout all, like not all, but a great majority <laughs> of Christmas music. It's where the choir comes in and the string quartet swells. Um, like there's there's whole there's whole uh, movies and plays based on that title, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Um, all of these yep. all of these plays um have this sort of like unexplained thing that happens that the warm fuzzies all come about from. Um, and and somehow you make it through to the end and the world is affected as a result of this change. The world, at least the world that we've been introduced to, is changed for the better and uh, and lives to make it through to another year. No, I, I absolutely. And I wonder if, how much we'll see that in some of the upcoming plays and the way that the Christmas miracle is I, I mean I, I can imagine right and in fact the inspector general exists I haven't ever read the original Russian play so I don't know if it ends with the same kind of days machina but I could imagine a version of this play where that's not about the Christmas Carol it's about Hamlet or something and it's, so it's not a Christmas show and at the end they do a terrible version and the NEA agent loves it and I I think I I'm doing a lot of uh, assumption here but I think I would you know I the the ending would still feel like oh okay this is a comedy that's what happens but something about the setting of it at Christmas leads me to accept that ending with a with a far less degree of skepticism than I think I otherwise would. It is far less eye-rolling to me because it is in the context of a holiday show where I'm ready to accept Scrooge's whole outlook on life, about every part of his life, changing on a dime. And again, the the Deus Machina in Christmas Carol is not just Scrooge's behavior change, but that it all happens in one night, that he still makes it by Christmas. Like that idea of everything changing at once in a way that it doesn't have to be storytelling good. That is just the miracle of it. I, I, I accept that at the end of this play, in part because I think it's a Christmas play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christmas play, need hope in the middle of winter sort of effect. Um, that, that, uh, yeah, that, that, that all, that many Christmas stories do have. And I think, I think I agree. I think we'll kind of continue to see some of that resonance throughout the other plays in our themed mistletoe month. And while the conversation today, um, is drawing down to a close, we are excited to both continue to invite conversation about inspecting Carol, but also broaden the conversation out to all the other plays that we are engaging in this themed month. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at no script podcast. We also have a gmail no script podcast at gmail.com if you want to chat about any of these plays if you have a particular christmas resonance or holiday resonance um in in a christmas carol or any of the other uh, other uh, mistletoe plays that we are talking about this month we'd love to be chatting about with them with you find us on any of those sites we'd love to talk with you over there Absolutely. If you enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, please recommend us to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes stories, plays, theater, movies, discussions about writing or Christmas. 
send them our way. We'll be back with three more plays in this themed month starting next week. You can like us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, any of the other places you get your podcasts is where you can listen. You could also like us on Facebook, and a link to the new episode appears every Monday when we publish. Again, three more holiday plays coming your way in this themed month, this mistletoe month. Yes, indeed. And so until we're talking about the next one, I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.